Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And welcome to episode 39. Today we are talking about Season of the Witch, not Halloween 3, <laughs> but the uh, 1973 George A. Romero film. Yes, we definitely need to make that clear because it's not Halloween 3 time. Maybe someday, but not today. Yeah, today is not that day. <laughs> it's funny, though, actually, because... I had a hard time when I was looking at this on IMDb. I had a hard time finding this actual movie because the runtime of the movie is suspect. Like yes. IMDb versus what you have on the DVD versus what it shows on because it's on Shutter right now streaming. Yeah. Three different runtimes on the movie. This movie also has three different names. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's just a way to keep it wily because, you know, like there's power in threes. Yeah. Witch, witchy stuff. Yeah. We'll get into the weird witchy stuff. Indeed. So this was after Night of Living Dead, yes. but before a lot of other famous Romero zombie movies, right? Correct. Yeah. So this was the period between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Okay. So it's a roughly 10-year period, I mean, to the release of Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And in that time, you know, Romero had gotten a lot of notoriety and fame from Night of the Living Dead, and he really was being careful not to be pigeonholed in a particular type of horror, or pigeonholed as, like, the zombie guy, which, of course, we all know he would eventually, you know continue to do that's how he would end his career etc but um this is a period of time when he was still working in television so while night of the living dead had given him a lot of fame as an independent filmmaker it wasn't such that he could like quit his day job mm -hmm. so he worked in public television in pittsburgh he made the crazies he made this film he made martin right before dawn of the dead he also made a lesser known film called there's always vanilla which if you get the anchor bay dvd of season of the witch there's always vanilla is a co-feature mm -hmm. or a bonus feature on that he also made this really cool film that was just recently uncovered, and you can find it on Shudder. They got to premiere it called Amusement Park mm -hmm. that I absolutely love because it is bananas. It's like a public service announcement film, but it's like it's a horror film and it's weird and I love it. So this was really I see this period as Romero really stretching his artistic wings because a lot of the things we're seeing in these films are still like touching on the themes that we know he you know he established that he liked to explore in night and we would see him expand upon in the other zombie movies but he's also like really like kind of pushing some boundaries in terms of symbolism and artistic work i'm here for it i actually really like the stuff from this era because i think it's really interesting yeah, this is the only one I've ever seen in this time period. Like, I've seen the remake of The Crazies. I've never seen the original. I haven't seen Amusement Park. When watching this one, I was kind of expecting more like Dawn of the Dead. Uh-huh. Yeah. I knew he had kind of left the rigidity of Night of the Living Dead behind. But I was sort of thinking that this was going to be closer to 
Dawn of the Dead. And there's even a little bit of rigidity, I think, in Dawn of the Dead in terms of his filming style. Yeah. And maybe that was just for like reception purposes. He just wanted something that was going to be more commercially accepted in terms of a zombie movie, I guess, as far as you can be accepted in the zombie slash horror genre. But this one, he uses a lot of like interesting camera tricks. He uses a lot of like very vibrant color as much as it can be because the copy of this film, unfortunately, is not very good. It's not up to the standard of a lot of his other films that we see in reproduction today, but it's very avant-garde. It's dealing with a lot of concepts and themes that were not popular in horror yet. Yeah. I think we were just starting to explore and just starting to really question these themes like in general in movies period. We would actually see a lot of these themes explored in exploitation movies. Absolutely. But before we do that, I just wanted to say really quick, just kind of give you the cast of characters very yeah. quickly. So there's not a huge cast on this movie. I'm only going to go over a few of the characters. There is Joni, or Joan, who is our main character. She's played by Jan White. Very few credits under her belt. There's a character named Greg, who's played by an actor named Raymond Lane. Shirley, that's Joan's friend, played by Anne Muffley. Nikki, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce Nikki's given name. Nikki is Joan's daughter, played by, I believe it's Joda McLean, or Joetta McLean. And then her husband... Jack, Joan's husband, Jack, played by Bill Thunhurst. And that's basically it. And unfortunately, I wish I could tell you some other films that these actors have been in, but you probably haven't heard any of any yeah. of them. Some of these actors and actresses actually have never been in anything else aside from this movie. I read in the trivia for this movie, Jan White, actually, this was like her film that she was discovered in. Yeah, she was doing commercials before that. Right. And then she was only in like three other movies. And then that was it. Yeah. She was in this. She was in a movie called Touch Me Not. The other thing that she was in was actually before this, which was in 1953 called Monodrama Theater. No idea what that is. Yeah, I don't know. And perhaps she was very young or even a kid when she was in that because... It's possible. I don't have any age information on her. Just ballparking this. I would say she's probably in her early 40s, maybe, in the film. I think so. She's meant to play a middle-aged housewife. And she has a child. She's old enough to have a child who's in college. Right. So I would say probably mid to late 40s. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. But yeah, that's kind of the main cast of characters. I just wanted to say that really quick before we get into it. But we'll probably just be referring to them by their character names because I've literally never heard of anything <laughs> else that any of those actors have done. And they don't even have a picture on IMDb. Yeah, I think uh, Jan White is the only one who yeah. has a photo. So this movie starts off with the most bizarre dream sequence of all time. I love it. It has to be the, the so most much. bizarre scene. And it's much like, I mean, it's like a real dream, you know? Yeah. You're not really sure what's happening because at first it's kind of plausible that this would be a real thing that's happening. She's walking through this forest and her husband's walking ahead of her. Or in this case, we don't know it's her husband yet. A man is walking in front of her and these tree branches are just slapping her in the face and cutting her face, making her bleed. And then there's a baby on the ground and she's following behind her husband this entire yeah. time. Then there's a baby on the ground and you're like, okay, baby. And then she sees herself swinging on a swing in white. She's dressed all in white. And then she and her husband get in a car. She tries to lock the door to keep him from getting in. 
but he smacks her in the face with a newspaper and then leashes her and puts her in a kennel. And then he tells the like kennel master or whatever that he's going to be gone for a certain amount of time. And then there's another dog there. And then she wakes up. Yeah. And you're like, wait, what What exactly is happening here? Yep. I don't understand. Yeah. Good thing it was a dream because I don't know if my brain could have accepted <laughs> if this was how the movie was going to go. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, IRL, like in real movie time. If it started out like that and, and we just had to roll with it, I would probably been like, I don't know if my brain is ready for this right yeah. now. So it's some very strange imagery to kind of start us off. And obviously it's kind of a roadmap to the way that the movie's going to go. Yeah, definitely. So just prepare thyself for that weird. <laughs> I don't <laughs> dive in feet first to yeah. uh, some art house stuff. And sorry, before she wakes up, I forgot about this part. She is shown into her own home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By a man. And he's pointing out all of the things in her house and saying like, and here's your daughter. And her daughter leaves out through the back door. And he's like, you know, here's a pile of checkbooks for you. And is just being very condescending about, obviously, it's her house. She knows where everything yeah. is. And then she wakes up. Yeah. I had forgotten about that part. And he keeps saying, et cetera, et cetera, uh-huh. et cetera. It's very strange. So having that kind of juxtaposition of something that's very weird and full of symbolism and then like bookending that with something that's very plausible and normal and almost boring and condescending is a very interesting choice I think especially for the very beginning of a movie oh yeah definitely I like it though because it actually really although it's jarring it tells us exactly where this character is when we meet her you Mm -hmm. know like all of the symbolism was although kind of surprising uh, to start a movie that way it was very clear kind of what this person's role is you know what they are feeling trapped by and of course we know that she's in psychoanalysis because she's been having these strange dreams and so we as a viewer get to sort of take on that role of like analyzer where we're like oh yeah well i can you know even though her psychiatrist is like way off the mark and again is being like super condescending we as a viewer can innately understand like oh man you know she's in this abusive marriage she's got this daughter who you know is kind of ready to become her own person and leave the home She's feeling trapped. She's feeling lesser than a person. And she's surrounded by the mundane trappings of the life of a housewife. Like, I love it because we get so much about this person through this dream sequence before we ever see her and experience her in the real world. And so we completely understand where she is right when we start. Yeah. You know, we see that baby and then towards the end of the dream, we see her daughter leaving through the door. Yeah. And then we also see, and I also forgot to write this part down. She sees herself in the mirror. Yeah. And when she looks at herself in the mirror, she's much older. Her hair is gray. She has more wrinkles. And that is a recurring theme in her dreams that she actually has a dream later on where she can't see anything but herself as old. She clearly has a fear of aging, too. Yeah, we also see her, and this manifests, this is probably the closest thing that manifests exactly like one-to-one in her dream versus in the real world, is we see her surrounded by the other women, the other housewives, and she's very much like 
amongst a cacophony of laughter and very shallow conversation. And you can tell that she feels other and apart from that and sort of, you know, one part nonplussed by it and another part, you know, almost, I don't want to say offended because it's not like a moral offense, but it's just almost like she's not impressed with it. You know, she's just kind of like, eh, you know, she's not, she's definitely not into this sort of a false, let's say false or put upon enthusiasm of these other women, both in the dream world and in the real world. Yeah, definitely. And the man is very condescending when he presents those women. You know, he's like, oh, and of course, here's the women. Yeah. You know, here are your people. Yeah, exactly. When it's very obvious from the start of the movie that Joni is apart from them. Although she participates in their world, she's not really a part of it. Yeah. And we see this early on in some conflicts that she has with her friend, I think, Shirley. Yeah. She has some conflicts with Shirley. They have these very kind of mundane conversations, but it's clear that Joni is on a different level than Shirley is, especially when it comes to being enlightened about sex, about her role as a wife in this very like kind of rigid social situation that they're in and also about witchcraft there's something like kind of in the very beginning of the movie shirley introduces Joni to a witch for a tarot reading and Joni becomes very immersed in this and says admits to shirley i'm very interested in this and not just for like a a kick type thing they keep saying you know they're using the hip swanky (laughs) 70s terms But she's not just interested in it as like a lark. She wants to truly pursue this. She feels like this is a calling for her. It's very interesting that she like right out of the gate, you know, she's not like these other women. She has not really, truly accepted where she's at. Yeah. And that there's more for her. Yeah. I think to that end, that is a really good illustrative moment. I'll just go ahead and put my big theory out there that the entire movie witchcraft is a metaphor for feminism, mm-hmm. for yeah. true feminism. Because I think that what we see is, and not to get into whole like feminist theory, but you know we see Shirley and some of these other women who, some of them may call themselves feminists, but honestly, for the time and for their position in society, that seems probably a little too radical. But I think that they would definitely consider themselves modern women, you know, modern women of the world, you know, air quotes, liberated women. And yet, when we really look at, you know, the sort of dichotomy with this conversation with Shirley, it becomes clear very quickly that Shirley is not as open-minded or as liberated or as feminist as even she thinks she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to speak to your point about witchcraft being a, a metaphor for feminism, Sylvia, she's the woman that they go to for the tarot reading. At the end of the movie, during the ritual, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more later, yeah. she's actually wearing a feminine symbol. Yeah, and Uh-oh. it's on the book too. Yeah, exactly. So it's like... Okay. All right. <laughs> Witchcraft <see> you. <laughs> it equals feminism? Question mark? Sure. Sure. That's kind of how I put it in my notes, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> to speak to the patriarchy in this movie, the psychiatrist that Joni talks to at the beginning of the movie, the psychiatrist does not get a lot of play. He's actually only featured in very small portions of the movie. But he literally says, he tells Joni, she relays her dream, the beginning dream to him. He tells Joni, 
this is a quote, the least qualified person to evaluate a dream is the dreamer. Oh. So he's saying like, oh no, you don't know what's going on inside your own head. I am the only one who can tell you. Yeah. And he also says, and this is also a quote, the only person imprisoning Joni is Joni. So he, you know, a dude, of course, in the 70s talking to this board housewife and saying, you don't understand what's happening in your dreams. However, you are the only person who's holding yourself back. Uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, girl. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. It's super gross. It reminds me of like every time somebody is like, you know, oh, but like you can have free time. It's just you have to make choices about your priorities. And I'm like, well, capitalism states <laughs> I got to do this thing to pay my bills. So I don't really have a choice. Yeah, exactly. I just thought it was funny. Like, we come out of the gate with Joni having this dream about men telling her what to do and mansplaining her life to her. And then her psychiatrist is like, you don't know what's inside your head, but also you're holding yourself back. You know, this film is really ahead of its time. And funny enough, an article just came out about it like three days ago on Collider. And it's a really, really good look at it. This was a piece, a pretty long piece written by Joseph Ornelas. And the headline, and we'll link it in the show notes, is George Romero's underrated 70s psychological horror deserves more praise. And it is entirely devoted to this film and talks about how you can really draw some through lines between this film and some of the more modern like A24 movies, movies like The Babadook, you know, that this along with Rosemary's Baby and other films were sort of like early sort of feminist leaning horror films or explored, you know, psychological ideas and use symbolism in a way that we see we're seeing manifest yet today. And to that end, I just want to give George Romero, I I will always give Romero props because I think he does a lot of things really well, especially like coming from his like position and identity in the world and especially making a film in 1972. The fact that all of the men in this film are hateable, are utterly hateable, and there is not a single like redeeming male character in this. You know, and it's not to like hate on men, but it really would undermine the whole thesis of the film to have like the sort of, you know, redeeming, shining prince, good guy. And he just, he doesn't do it. And part of this is, you know, he was still at this time an independent filmmaker. So he didn't have a studio breathing down his back to say, oh man, you know, you got to make one likable guy. Like he was really following his own vision on this. And I give him a lot of props for that because it really makes the message of this film crystal clear. Yeah, it's unflinching. The, The portrayals of men in this movie are completely unflinching. From Jack, that's Joan's husband, he hits her several times through the movie. He berates her multiple times as well. And then Greg, who is just... He's like a surly asshole, like the yeah. the know-it-all dude who's like, "Oh, I'm too I'm too hip for everybody and I know more than anyone and I'm going to wear my turtleneck with a sport coat, you know, that kind of yeah. asshole." Like I'm not even a professor, but I teach at college, therefore I'm smarter than you. Yeah. He's probably a TA. Yeah. I think he was. 
Ugh. <laughs> okay. And then the only other men in the movie are the police. And we only hear a discussion about David, who right. is Shirley's lover. And Larry, too. Larry, her husband. Yeah. Who also seems to be abusive. Because, not to jump too far ahead, but when, you know... Joni and Shirley have gone to get their tarot cards read and they come back to the house and they're at first drinking with Greg and uh, Nikki. And then Greg pulls this whole ridiculous pot stunt, uh, just reinforcing how much of an (laughs) ass this dude is. Shirley kind of freaks out. And that's a very telling moment for her character because we realize like she is not at all what she says she is in a very vulnerable way. Yeah. And one of the things she says, she's begging Joan. Joan says, I should take you home. And she's begging Joan, we'll stay with me tonight and we'll do something fun tomorrow. And then she slips in kind of in her, I hate this word, but in her hysteria, she says, and Larry won't come at me if you're there. Yeah. All of these women have these abusive spouses. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if that meant like Larry was going to try and have sex with her or Larry was just going to like beat the crap out of her for coming home so late. But in either case, it's obvious that she didn't want whatever was going to happen. Exactly. And I was like, well, in the 70s, it was kind of expected. Like, the woman just goes along with whatever their husband says in one way or the other. So, Well, and especially remember that these are older women in Mm -hmm. the 70s. You know, these are women who have been married a while. And we see that contrast between Joan and her daughter. You know, Nikki's expectations of sex and relationships and romance are very different than her mother's. And you see Joan almost envying that or exploring that idea a little bit because that was not the way that she was brought up to understand what it is to be a woman, be a sexual partner, be, you know, a romantic partner or a spouse with somebody. So I think that's an important distinction too, is not only are these married women in the 70s, but these are married women of a certain age which means that they were trained by married women of a certain era on, you know, what the societal expectations are. Yeah. And on the way home from the tarot reading, which to be clear, Joan does not get a tarot reading. Correct. At that time. Shirley is the only one who gets a tarot reading. And during the course of Shirley's tarot reading, Sylvia discusses that she has a failure of romantic love and a woman with dark hair has intervened. And on the way back, Shirley kind of reveals that it's not Larry, her husband, who's being unfaithful. It's Shirley herself who's not being faithful. She was with somebody named David. Yeah. And then it just underscores for Joan again that Shirley is open-minded. Shirley is being unfaithful. She's trying to find sex or romance. And they keep talking about the sex without love thing, yeah, which I think we'll come back to. But there's so much around her that's happening that's outside of what she knows. And it seems like everybody else is having fun or a good time and she's not able to. So I definitely think that what you said about her being envious of Nikki is 100% correct. Yeah. That Joan sees her daughter blossoming into this like independent, autonomous woman who gets to make distinctions about who she's sleeping with and not having serious relationships with those people. But then also still being careful about not getting pregnant and determining her own future when Joan wasn't able to do those same things. And so Joan's like, no, I want a piece of that pie. I want to reclaim 
my own life and my own agency as a woman. Yeah. So very fascinating. It's super fascinating, those two parallels, her journey versus her daughter's journey. To keep going on with the Nikki thread, there's a semi-uncomfortable moment in the movie after Joan drops Shirley off at her house. Mm -hmm. Joan's going to stay with Shirley. She's agreed to stay with her, but then they both see Larry kind of lurking in the doorway. So they drop Shirley off and Joan decides to go home. When she's at home, Nikki's there with Greg and they're obviously having sex. Yeah. And Joan feels kind of awkward, so she doesn't say anything. She just goes to her room. But then she has this sort of moment where she's kind of into it. Yeah. But then she also feels ashamed. Yeah. Like she starts to be upset and kind of cry. And then Nikki comes in and is also very upset at her mother and says, like, how could you? You know, this is... She intimates that it's an invasion of her privacy. And then the next day, Nikki leaves. She packs up her stuff and leaves. And they don't know where she's gone. Greg doesn't know where she's gone or he says he doesn't. So that moment when Joan comes home after this very intense emotional evening and finds her daughter in a display of that agency, and then she becomes excited herself and then becomes ashamed. And then I feel like that's the turning point in the film. Her daughter leaves and she's like, nope, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. I can't continue on this way. My daughter gets to have her agency and she gets to make these choices about her sex life and her love life, which she's keeping separate. Yeah. The sex without love thing. And I never got to do that. Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. And I think that it's interesting they keep talking about, you know, can you have sex without love? And I feel like Joan has neither love nor sex, you Mm -hmm. know, at, at this sort of turning point. You know, she it's made clear that she is, you know, sort of at the age that society expects women to increasingly become sexless and desexualized you know she is a mother of a grown child at this point so what you know of course this is like you know the patriarchy you know so what would she need to have sex for god forbid her own pleasure right but also it's very obvious her husband does not love her you know and we get that both from the dream and the flashback you know her husband treats her like a piece of furniture almost in the house you know like if she's there and quiet and fulfilling her role it's fine but if she's in his way or causing him problems then he lashes out and that's not love obviously so she it's almost like she can't even fully comprehend what sex without love means or she's trying to because she's like well i don't have love i might as well have sex Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Yeah, and there are multiple times in the movie where her husband hits her or humiliates her Yeah, in one way or the other. And there are times when you can see her kind of reflecting on her husband, especially at the party where there's Mad Libs that are happening, which apparently, if you didn't know this, in the 70s, somebody would go around with Mad Libs and ask all these different people for words, and then they would read it out loud. They were an actual party game, not just something you did like in the backseat on a road trip. <laughs> That's the only time I've ever done it is in the backseat on a road yeah. trip. Yeah. Well, I feel like Mad Libs actually came back like in the 90s. Like they weren't a thing. And then I can remember, I can remember when Books & Co started stalking them and i remember my mom even saying like oh yeah that was a thing from the 70s and apparently it's back (laughs) 
that's so weird because I've done them before, but never like, you know, I've only asked. Not like in a social setting. <laughs> right. I would never bring Mad Libs with me and be like, oh, yeah, you guys want to hear some Mad Libs? You should have a Mad Libs party. <laughs> Mad Libs party. Yeah. With, with charcuterie. <laughs> with charcuterie. And everybody has to wear velvet of some sort and yes. long necklaces yes. and turtlenecks. If we find those free booze cups at the thrift store. Oh, my God. Those that is our signal. Cups. The ladies, they're sitting around playing cards. I think it's spades. I don't know. I'm not good at card games. I know nothing about cards other than right? tarot cards. Yeah, exactly. But they have these glasses that say free booze on them, and they're hysterical. I really want to look for them now. Yeah. But the guy who's reading the Mad Libs, like, at the time, like, her husband is the focus of the Mad Lib. And she's, like, looking at him. And also, this lady definitely, she has, like, some hooded eyes. Like, oh, very, yeah. very, like, heavy-lidded eyes. And she's, like, looking at him, but it almost is like she's looking through him. Totally. It's not like a caring glance. It's more like an appraisal, like, yeah, this dude sucks. Yeah. It's very clear that this is a loveless, like, bloodless marriage, basically, at this point. And after Nikki leaves, there's a point where Joan is upset that she's left, even though Nikki's allowed to leave. She's of age. She's in college. She can do what she wants. Joan's sitting in the chair and her husband is humiliating her and saying, like, you let her have sex in the next room and you didn't do anything about it. And then he slaps her in the face. And I thought it was very interesting that in that moment she's wearing a white dress. And then in the very next scene, she's wearing a red dress when she starts talking to the police about Nikki's disappearance. And I think that the clothing choices are definitely deliberate in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's a harsh change between the two. Like b- oh, yeah. between those two outfit changes, yeah. going from white to red, I feel like that's also a marked turning point in how Joan is going to allow herself to be treated. It's for the even like a hard cut. Yeah. Like, you know, Romero edited this film himself. So he wrote, directed, edited. Again, independent filmmaker. It's easy to forget with a name like his that he was an independent filmmaker, especially back then. So he did all of the things. And he was very meticulous about the editing of this film. And he was very proud of some of the editing of this film because it was how he got around the fact that he lost a bunch of money that he was promised for his budget. Like, he was Um. promised, I think, twice as much as what he got. Oh, wow. This is... Interestingly, the only film of his that he had said later in his career, he was asked, would he ever want to remake any of his films? Like, if he could go back and remake any of his films, would he? And he said this is the one that he would like to remake because he didn't have the budget he wanted. And if he had had the budget he wanted, he could have done so much more with it. Wow. Yeah. But he made up for a lot of that with the editing. And I think like hard cuts like that really emphasize some of those turns and points. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, again, it's like the mark of a skillful filmmaker that like, yeah, you don't have a lot of money, but you can really think about the craft and like how to not the craft, da, da, da. <laughs> uh, but you can think about the craft and how it, uh, you know, how you can use the craft of filmmaking and the art of editing to tell a story, even in absence of the money that you really needed to do it the way you wanted it yeah, to. Right. I think that you're totally right. This is a movie that's obviously made on a shoestring budget. There's not yeah. a lot of effects that are happening. It's filmed in like two people's houses. It's not on a sound stage anywhere. <laughs> It's yeah. probably in Pennsylvania, you know, just in some somebody's big old house. So, yeah, I think he originally the original budget was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and he ended up only having a hundred thousand to make it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so not a lot of money to disseminate among your people. Right. Among your actors and workers and things. So, wow. A couple of other things here. I think this movie honestly tackles probably a fear of every middle-aged woman. We already talked about like sexless marriages or loveless marriages and relationships. A fear of aging. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, There's a lot of scenes where uh, we see... Joan kind of reflecting on herself in the mirror. Shirley just out and out says it like, I'm not done yet. I feel like I'm getting near to the end of my life and there's so many things I haven't yet accomplished and I want to. Even though Shirley isn't that much older than Joan, like maybe less than 10 years, you know, she's in her 50s. Yeah. She's very upset about the idea of aging. It's a huge theme throughout the movie, how you deal with aging, being afraid of that, being afraid of death. And that's sneaking up on you because throughout the entire movie and in a lot of the big scenes, there's a clock ticking. Yes. And it's like biological clock, the fear of aging, yeah. like all those things, just constant reminder in that clock ticking because it's very deliberately loud. Yeah. And there's no grandfather clocks to be seen. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's just the march of time, which is actually extra interesting because that is uh, what the amusement park is all about. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. The amusement park is all about aging. It's so disturbing. It's wonderful. I love it. I, I, We were watching it on Shudder, and I was just like, I just kept saying out loud, I was like, I love this so much. Like, this is so messed up, and I love it so much, because the whole thing is just, it's a giant metaphor. I need to watch that. I, I haven't seen it. So I wanted to talk about this bull uh, oh, yes. statue. <laughs> yes, the random bull statue. So there's a bull statue in the bedroom of Joan and her husband. And we see it a lot during the course of the movie. We see it at the very beginning after she wakes up from her dream. And these are like close up still shots of this bull. Yeah. And then there are sometimes when we see the profile of it in shadow, um, kind of against the wall. But one of the times when you see it the most is when Nikki is having sex with Greg and... Joan is sort of like writhing around on her bed, like in between kind of ecstasy and shame. They keep cutting to that bull right. back and forth. Yeah. What did you think about it? Did you feel like it was a fertility symbol? Yeah. I mean, bulls are generally associated with like virility and fertility. I think it has something to do with that. I mean, the interesting part about it is like a bull is definitely, you know, masculine energy. It's not like it was a symbol of, like, the divine feminine, where she's, like, channeling the divine feminine. It's definitely more a masculine symbol, but it's a masculine symbol that's really, really tied to to sex and sexuality. So I think it's almost like, because up until the whole Greg thing happens with Joan, which we'll get to, we see Joan by herself. It's almost like the bull is, like, the stand-in for the sort of like masculine energy that is again and this was the 70s assumed in cis heterosex and it's almost like well she's just claiming that for herself like along with herself like she doesn't actually need a person there she can take care of it herself or she can figure out how to use some magic to uh get a mask person there yeah so i'm gonna go on this weird loop around okay do um, it 
about the bull thing. So the bull reminded me of True Blood because yes. of the main ad in True Blood. Which I was love like, where this is going. So yes. that was like one of my favorite things me in too. True Blood was the main ad thing, even though everybody was like, oh, no, it's so goofy. It was the best. It was like the last time when True Blood really was like yes. good. <laughs> yeah. Know? And that was only like season two. So. Yeah. I think it was her name was Marianne. Yes. And yes. she turned the entire town into like this crazy bacchanalian. Yeah. Orgy, like basically. Total hedonist. Yeah. Until Sam turned into a bull. So that's why what it made me think of. Is oh, I was like, right. So maybe and this could be totally out of left field, but maybe that bull could be a metaphor or a symbol for Dionysus. Dionysus being the freer of people yeah. from their inhibitions and yeah. freer of uh folks like liberation from oppressors and powerful people and things like that i just was thinking of the whole maynad thing and i was like oh maybe it's a dionysus thing because that's how they would uh worship dionysus the maynads they would wear those bull um helmets so i don't know it could not be anything but that's what it made me think of i wonder so dionysus isn't typically associated with a bull but i'll tell you who is it's ball Oh, yeah. Uh, is a bull god and is associated very specifically with fertility. So I wonder if that's, oh. that might even be who that statue was meant to depict. I mean, and of course, the bull, like any horned beast, is also associated with the devil. Uh, sure. Which, you know, the devil gets some, some mentions in here. So big question then, since we're, we're talking about Satan for a hot minute here. I'm going to rephrase our favorite Haunting of Hill House question to apply to this movie. Is it magic or is it a response to the patriarchy? (laughs) Oh, man, this is great. I love that you repurposed that. I thought that was fantastic. So I don't think it's magic. Okay. I, I don't think that it has anything to do with magic. And I think that the thing that kind of sealed the deal for me on that was the cat. Yeah. So, you know, Joan is summoning, I can't remember what the name of the being is, but she says on behalf of Satan, and there's a cat that gets in through their basement window. And then when she wakes up after she's done this ritual, the cat's on the table and she flips out. Yeah. She just absolutely loses her head about it. And I was like, well, I think that's the other deal for me is that Joan is reclaiming her power and reclaiming her life and her sexuality and how she can wield that sexuality. But I don't think that she's magic. Yeah. Because all of the things that end up happening are kind of banal. Like she calls Greg and he comes over. Greg is a horny, free love college kid. Yeah. If you're thirsty and you call a horny free love college yeah, exactly. kid, he's coming over. Yeah. Like you got the impression that he had some feelings for you when he was over there and you totally know, drinking with you and Shirley. He's coming over. These dreams that she's having, you know, I don't think that there's anything magic about it. And the way that I feel about tarot and I practice, you know, I read my tarot cards all the time. The way I feel about it is that it's has as much meaning as we impart to it. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's a form of divination that allows us to be able to see more clearly into problems that we already know we have. Yeah. It's not telling us anything we don't know. Yeah. It's just a way of being outside of ourselves and allowing something else to kind of help us work through problems or focus on things that might be important. I mean, you don't have to listen to your tarot readings. You know, you could just be like, oh, this is goofy and not pay any attention to them. 
And they will have just as much power as somebody who takes that to heart. Yeah. Well, and I think that there was a really good demonstration of that. And, you know, depending on how savvy you are and how much familiarity you have with tarot, I would be interested to know, like, how much Romero knew about tarot when he wrote the tarot reading scene. Um, Although I, I know he was researching witchcraft for another project and ended up using all of that in this film. To me, it was so obvious that the tarot reader, um, whose name I'm forgetting right now, when she read Shirley's cards, that she was kind of full of shit, you know, because she was doing like the really stereotypical thing that if you know anything about tarot, you know, is not true. There is nothing about it's a dark haired woman or it's a dark haired person. Like that's not that's not like the most accurate way to read like here's my disclaimer if you get a reading and somebody is doing that they're full of crap and you're not getting a good reading you know like a good reading is actually a more generalized reading that lets you draw your own conclusions and make your own choices about how you want to apply this or not to your life so i thought that that really established like the magic maybe not so yeah although Spoiler alert for Hereditary, which like, you know, if you haven't watched it, number one, go watch it. Number two, go listen to our episode about it. You know, in Hereditary, it's like you think the same thing. Right. And it's totally real. You know, like, yeah, there's actual like real weird magic happening there. But I like that this didn't do that. Yeah, it keeps it very ambiguous. And there definitely is an argument that could be made that, yes, this is real and like, she is truly making magic happen, i.e. the pitcher on the table that's rattling. Yeah. But also that could be literally anything. Also, her husband was like raging out. So he right. probably was like shaking the table. His somehow. blood pressure was making it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but yeah, like it keeps it very ambiguous about whether or not it's actually real magic, like capital M magic. It doesn't seem like it to me. And I agree with you about the tarot reader. Because Sylvia, before she even does the reading, she's discussing payment. Yeah. She's like, no, you just, you know, just send me whatever you think it's worth, but don't put your name on it. But yeah. also don't send a check, only send cash. And it's like, okay, well, or you could be like a legitimate person and say like, okay, give me 30 bucks and I'll read your right. cards, you know? Right. Speaking of which, I've never actually had my cards professionally read. Have you ever had yours read? No, not professionally, no. Oh, maybe we should have an Attack of the Final Girls like... Oh, outing. Okay. Go get our cards right. That'd be fun. (laughs) Although I'm a little afraid, but also it's cool, but also I'm afraid. Yeah, both. (laughs) Both. I mean, speaking of, let's get into the whole, like, don't mess with. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Joan makes so many bad choices in regards to messing with the other side. Like, girl. We've talked about this in no less than three other episodes. Yeah. You can't. Like, please don't mess with magic. Like, it's one thing to go get your tarot read because you're not leaving with anything. You're not yeah. attempting to contact spirits you're or contact summoning ripping things. the veil open there. Right, exactly. <laughs> one of the things I said while we were watching the movie is I was like, oh, girl, blood magic? Yeah. Like, first day, the very first day that Jones got this book, she goes out to the store And she, like, gets all of her witch stuff together, and then she's like, oh, I'm going to do blood magic right now. This is fine. No, it's not fine. It's like, girl, you didn't put down a salt circle. Yeah. You did not do, you didn't cleanse your home, and you're doing blood magic? Yeah. First night, 
Yeah, that no, seems like you. a really bad idea. That's some Nancy from the craft shit right there. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's how Nancy happens. Oh, uh, yeah. There's so many choices. Like, just she goes right to, like, lighting black candles on the full moon and summoning people. Yeah. And yeah. then she has Greg. So, like, that's the whole thing where she, like, quote unquote, summons Greg. And then they have, like, tons of crazy sex in her house because her husband's off on a business trip. And then after that, she completes a ritual right there. Yeah, no. Summoning a being. Yeah, no. And then Greg, like, essentially, like, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if the intention was to be rape, but basically, like, roughly has sex with yeah with joan after that and then after that i'm just like where's your head at you know yeah where you're because yes she's a board housewife and yes she's very interested but at the same time like you're messing with stuff because she mentions to sylvia before shirley has her tarot read she says she's afraid Right. And it's like, are you afraid? Because you just did blood magic and you tried to summon a being and you got scared shitless when you saw a cat on your table. Yeah. So she's like, throughout the course of the movie, like increasingly freaking herself out. Oh, yeah. With this stuff. Yeah. Which creates the end of the movie, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So like her dreams are scaring her and then her taking charge of her sexuality is starting to scare her and it's making her more and more afraid of being in her own home because she's having these crazy dreams, which we'll get to. But yeah, that basically ends up being like what happens in the movie at the end of the movie. She just freaks herself out to the point where she shoots her husband. Yeah. (laughs) And kills him. Yeah. With a shotgun. Like straight up murders him. Which... We'll talk about that. Let's talk about the green man. I want to talk about the green man. Let's talk about the green man. This crazy dream thing that she's having. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll just start by saying I want to know if Alex Garland has seen this movie. Okay. So, yes. Because not only the green man thing, but also the intruder aspect of it. What the hell? Yeah. It's like a direct parallel to men. Yeah. Like... And, I, like, I looked it up because I was like, okay, Alex Garland, tell me what your inspiration was. Because yeah. maybe it was part of his inspiration. Yeah. But he just went way, way back to, like, you know, the Mythology green man. Yeah. yeah. And then the, I'm not going to be able to say it right because it's an Irish word, but the Irish term for the women that you would see in statues in Ireland, those, like, ancient statues of, like, women with giant labia lips oh, and stuff. Oh, yes. I know what those are. And I... Is it Sheila and the Giggs? Is I, that what they're called? I I know I the that. way that you said, the letters that you said are correct. I just can't do it in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that that's where he said like that and Adam and Eve and stuff. But I mean, honestly, you can see a through line through the Adam and Eve story even in this movie, I think. Absolutely. So even if it's maybe passive or he doesn't realize it, this movie definitely thematically inspired men and maybe maybe he's never seen it and it's just the, that Alex Garland and George Romero came to the same conclusions and used the same imagery and to that's get possible there. too Alex Garland if you're out there um, we want to know yeah I would say tweet us but don't don't do that nobody wants to go there anymore TikTok us TikTok us Instagram us email us email us please listen to our yeah. podcast <laughs> that'd be great but yeah like the symbolism of the green man being the one to invade 
Joan's dreams and also in her dream, in her safe place, which is her home, the green man is constantly getting in one way or the other and assaulting her and then she wakes up. Yeah. And in men, although it's not specifically the green man or at least the the image that we see of the man who is invading the main character's privacy is not, doesn't have a mask on, at least not for most of (laughs) it. For part of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. It is constantly invading her space, metaphorically, literally. It's yeah. It's just there's a very clear parallel there. One day we will do an episode on that. That time is not now, though. I'm not mentally prepared. No, I'm not ready. So a thing that I am curious to hear your thoughts on, because I feel like the movie did not adequately address this for me. Okay. At the very beginning of the movie, after Joan wakes up from her nightmare, she's having a discussion with Nikki at the breakfast table. And Nikki says, did my brother die before or after I was born? And they have this whole discussion. And she says, I think she says before. Yeah. But we don't get any more information about her dead brother. So I wanted to see what you thought about that. Do you feel like the movie had anything else to say about that? Or was that like a strange conversation opener? That's a really good question. I mean, I think I simultaneously wish the movie had said a little more about that, but I also think it's really accurate that it didn't say much more about that because especially, I mean, even now, but especially in that era, and we don't know if this was stillbirth or miscarriage is my assumption. I don't think, I don't understand it to be a baby or a small child that died. Uh, But even then, like child loss in general is, I think, more common than we think and more common than we talk about, Mm -hmm. you know. And the interesting part about that is Joan seems very unwilling to engage in the conversation. And the only person that is willing to engage with her about it is her daughter, who we're seeing set up as this more open, more liberated, more receptive person. Whereas the fact that we never hear about it again, especially amongst her peers, you know, the other wives, married women uh, of a certain age, you know, the conversation is always very frivolous, you know, Mm -hmm. other than that car ride with Shirley, you know, it's ha ha ha, that creepy woman is a witch, ha ha ha, mad libs, cards, etc. It's never, hey, like, you know, you lost a child, maybe you did too, or, you know, this person's daughter lost a child or or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, likewise, I think this film never overtly mentions birth control or abortion, but it's definitely implied in the conversation with Greg once Nikki is gone where Joan is asking him, like, did she leave because she's pregnant? And he said, no. And she's like, how do you know that? And he's like, by the numbers, you know, meaning Nikki is keeping track, knows how to deal with her own, you know, reproduction and and all of that uh, in a way that Joan doesn't even seem to truly, like, comprehend or think that her daughter is capable of. Mm -hmm. So I think... While it felt like a passing mention, I think it's yet another thing that sort of reinforces, like, who Joan is, like, in terms of 
being a woman in the world and what she might have universally experienced but isn't capable of really talking about or engaging with up against her daughter who, while she may not have had the experience, is very capable of talking about and engaging with this as a topic, as a topic of womanhood or Mm -hmm. of personhood, let's say. Yeah, because Nikki doesn't seem upset by the premise. She just simply is asking a question. And Joan is the one who seems to get upset, who starts to follow up with a bunch of extra questions. Why are you asking? I thought we already talked about this, you know, et cetera. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing to to start the movie off with and then not really bring that back up, at least specifically throughout the rest of the movie. I did want to make a quick mention of two things, uh, just so that you know which doors do take all major credit cards. (laughs) Indeed, they do. Because Joan just waltzes into the witch store. And to me, like 2023, Teresa, looking at this and seeing like she's buying like fennel seed and camphor and like musk incense. I'm like, oh, all of the hallmarks of a witch, you know, like in a very sarcastic way. But I mean, this was also 1972. So, yeah, I love that they very clearly like illustrate the type of shop. Again, so different from the world she's used to inhabiting because it is a bookstore and organic food store. So it is like hippie AF. And yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so wildly different than than the world that she is inhabiting. And she has to go into the city for that, you know, as opposed to the suburbs where she normally dwells. Yeah. Can't go to a Publix or a Kroger and get, yeah. you know, that stuff. Although you might be able to now. Musk incense and you can get incense, fennel. dude. You can get incense at the at the fancy grocery store. Oh, they yeah, have it. Sense. I mean, they have some kind of crunchy stuff, but yeah, that's fair. You know, yeah, everybody's got incense now. Well, we could also order it on Amazon. So Ugh, that yeah. feels all like weird and capitalist. I, I yeah, I mean for real. But <laughs> the, she also waltzes into the antique store and buys like a cauldron and yeah. a chalice. And the guy's like, wow, are you a witch? Like, I, 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 like, cackled when he said that because he's just, like, totally oblivious. She's like, oh, I'm just interested in it. She doesn't say, like, yes, I'm a witch. She just says, yeah. oh, I'm interested in it. Okay, so speaking of, there was this really interesting thing in the conversation with Greg early on that I want to bring up. Okay. Because I think there's a little bit of a parallel here. So here you have this wealthy suburban white woman who decides she's going to get into witchcraft and she has the money and the capability to go like right away, buy all the stuff she needs and then do very dangerous rituals as we have said. Oh my God, yeah. Well, earlier, Greg and Joan are having a pretty deep conversation when they're drinking with Nikki and Shirley about a kind of shared experience that I didn't fully understand. I think they were both part of a similar college program Mm -hmm. that took art, which, by the way, Joan was a painter, and we have no indication that she does that now, again, sort of taking away her agency and her personhood as she's fit this role. But um, both of them were involved in a program, it sounds kind of Mm AmeriCorps-esque, where they would go to poorer neighborhoods and try to help, you know, it, using whatever skills they had. And Joan mentions, you know, I was a painter. I was I was painting, I think, murals or something like that. And then they start having this really, really interesting conversation about how now Greg, having had the more recent experience, is talking to some of the folks in the communities that he is working in and serving. 
and about how those folks are really irritated because wealthy white suburban women, Jones peers, are air quotes volunteering and coming into these poorer communities, you know, these communities that they are not a part of and like doing air quotes service, but really, you know, not doing it in an intentional way in a community focused way. And Greg is explaining and Joan seems to be agreeing with him for all of his arrogance that it seems like this is just the latest fad, like the latest thing that these women are doing for fun without any thought to like who they're aiming to help, how they're aiming to help them. And again, like I thought that that concept and conversation was, it's just so ahead of its time. Like obviously stuff like that has been going on for a very, very, very long time. But to hear that talked about in casual conversation in a film from the early 70s was very surprising and refreshing. I think he even mentions that they have to go in and clean up the mess that the white ladies go in and create. Yeah. Like they don't actually do what they're supposed to be doing. And then those college kids have to go in and, and now clean up two messes. Yeah. That's an interesting kind of simultaneous situation there because you have Shirley, who's basically like totally frivolous and an idiot. Greg, like intimates that she's an idiot yeah he gets her high with a cigarette that he makes look like a joint yeah like immediately he just it's the power of being able to convince her that she's high and he tells joan like you knew what i was doing was right you knew what we were doing and you know that what i did was just proving the point that we had been discussing all night yeah so yeah i think you're right i had forgotten about that kind of like offhanded thing because I think she says that she had met Greg before. Like they have that right. strange, like, yeah. like woo, 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 you know, situation that happens between the two of them. She's like, oh yeah, we've met, and maybe she was like on the tail end of this program, or she volunteered, and then he was like just up and coming. Because although he's not as old as Joan, he is definitely older than Nikki, right, by several years. Yeah. So that's a very interesting kind of parallel situation that they have there where they're both of that same opinion and just another kind of way of othering her from the rest of her peers yeah, um, is to say like, oh, look, she has these far out ideas about, yep. you know, not taking up space in a situation where you can't be help. Yeah. You can't be of help. Yeah. I did want to also say Bill Heinzman played the yes. intruder. You may be familiar with him as the cemetery zombie from Night of the Living Dead. He's the one who kills Johnny, the brother, and busts open the car window with the rock. He plays the intruder who's wearing the green man mask, who is a recurring character in Joan's dreams. So he is a Romero vet. He is. Yeah. And I think it's great that he uh, was in that sort of green man role because the green man, like the physicality is like very kind of otherworldly, like very tall, very lanky. And that's kind of like Bill Heinzman is known as like the tall lanky guy. So it worked perfectly. Yeah, he's like, he's built kind of like Carol Strucken is, like Lurch style, you know? I was like really happy to see that. And literally the only other person I recognize from the cast list. (laughs) I mean, the only person. Yeah. And Bill Heinzman played like a pretty minor role in Night of the Living Dead. A minor but super memorable role. I mean, he is the first Romero zombie that we see and meet, you know? The The cemetery zombie, he's leading the pack. Yeah. Two things I want to say before we we uh, we polish it up. There have been a couple of times where we've talked about this movie as a metaphor for feminism, like witchcraft being a metaphor for yeah. feminism. 
But I want to iterate, at least in my mind, I don't think that Joan is a hero here. Correct. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like she is kind of the villain almost. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna get to that, but I wanted to talk about the parallel before I get to my final point. I want to talk about the parallel from the beginning of the movie, the dream that Joan has where uh, she's in the car and a collar appears around her neck and her husband puts a leash on her collar and then leads her to this kennel. So I wanted to draw a parallel between that because that's a red leash Uh and the end of the movie where Sylvia puts the red rope around her neck and then tethers her to the, it's like a trunk or something. Yeah. She tethers her to that trunk and then she like fake whips her with this like cat of nine tails, which is supposed to be symbolic. But the juxtaposition between the beginning of the movie and her being shackled to patriarchy and being a wife and a, and a mother and all that versus the juxtaposition of at the end of the movie being shackled to witchcraft and this coven now and all that stuff and kind of taking her role and her place in that coven. I thought it was an incredibly fascinating and very visceral piece of symbolism to draw between the beginning and ending of the movie is her giving up the shackles of patriarchy and and motherhood and being a wife and then submitting herself to a coven. She's just exchanging one shackle for the other. Exactly. Yeah. Like literally, figuratively. So, yeah. I, I don't know if you agree with that, but. <laughs> well, I do. And, and so that gets to the in a roundabout way, the original name of the film, which all ties into that last scene. So this was originally called Jack's Wife, was the original, original name, the name that Romero made it under. And that all kind of culminates in the fact that Joan is Jack's wife. She is like absent of personhood. She is not Joan. And at the end, she's still not Joan. She's a witch, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think the two different, I think the shacklings are absolutely accurate. Now, there was a third name to this film, which was called The Hungry Wives. Mm -hmm. And that was a result of um, the distributor wanted Romero to cut a bunch of stuff out so that they could essentially market the film as a softcore porn using that name, The Hungry Wives, you know, 42nd Street style. They actually wanted Romero to make the sex scenes between Greg and Joan more pornographic, and he refused. Yeah, it, they're not really pornographic in the first place. No. I, th- I think you see a nipple like one time. Yeah. In the whole movie. Yeah. It's not It's not a pornographic right. movie, so yeah. it's hard to make it that. Yeah. Like, it would totally... <laughs> It would undermine the point of the film and also it would just make no sense to have so much story and symbolism in a porn. Right. Not exactly. that porn can't be art. Sure, 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 it, sure. It totally can. And I'm fully like porn positive and, you know, yeah. make all of the cool movies that you want. But Romero is also not a porn director. Exactly. And this movie is like way over engineered for a 72 porn, you know? Yeah. But I also think, you know, it really speaks to his integrity as a filmmaker that, you know, the distributor was saying you could make a lot more money if you film these scenes and make them, you know, make them a little harder core and lean into the nudity a little more. And, you know, he wasn't going to exploit his actors that way. And he wasn't enticed by that money, even though, as we said earlier, like he lost over half of his budget on this film. He wasn't going to go there. You know, he was going to stay true to what he 
like set out to make, even if it wasn't, it didn't manifest in exactly the way he wanted to because he didn't have the money. Right. And to speak to kind of Romero as a filmmaker and as a person too, you know, I said earlier that I don't think Joan is a, a hero in this movie, but I don't think that Romero's message was meaning to say like feminism is bad or no, feminism is all. evil. I think what he was meaning to say is like, don't be so quick to replace one vice or one yes. crutch with another. Yes. Like, don't be so quick to, you know, fly out of agency and um, the trappings of like regular, you know, milk toast America and then immediately launch yourself into something really dark because that is what causes problems. Yeah. I don't think he was saying like feminism bad. I think no, he was saying so. like, be careful. Well, and I think, I think he was saying like, you know, to your point, swinging from one crutch to another in absence of actually figuring out who you want to be and how to be comfortable in your own skin, you know, as your own person within your own personhood, um, there are dangers in swinging too far in one direction of the other in the absence of knowing yourself. Exactly. Yes. Speaking of dangers, my very last point that I want to make do you think Joan knew who she shot through the door? Do you think she knew it was her husband or did she not know? That's a really good question. Do we need to know? Do we need to know? <laughs> um, you know, the cops kind of bring that question up. You know, the cops, in a very flippant way, we got some almost voiceover from the cops as they're sort of investigating the scene and we get these, you know, kind of the only moment of true gore in the film. We get these shots of uh, uh, her husband kind of bleeding out on the on the lawn in the rain and we hear the cops and they're saying, well, women always get away with it and it it doesn't matter whether it was intentional or not. And so the, the cops' dialogue kind of gives us permission to mm -hmm. say, like, it, it ultimately doesn't matter. But I think it is interesting because on the one hand, it's the out that she has wanted, even if she didn't intellectually know this was the out she wanted, it presented itself. And, you know, given that she legit thought she summoned a demon in, in the body of a cat, like she might be like, well, I summoned the opportunity to kill my husband. Yeah. Cool, cool. Thanks, witchcraft. <laughs> or, you know, we also know that she's been experiencing these, like, really, really strong kind of powerful delusions. And it could be that. Yeah. I don't think we have to know, but I think it's interesting to talk about. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily important one way or the other. It seems like, based off the course of the movie, that she doesn't know that she's doing this sort of as a manifestation as one of her, of one of her nightmares. But to your point, it is one hundred percent the out that she needs to be able to become a part of this coven. Yes. Because her husband never would have let her do that. No, he would not be down for that nonsense. <laughs> no, no. And uh, I think if he came home and saw all these black candles and everything all over his coffee table, he's probably going to be beating her again. Oh, yeah. So definitely. I mean, he's not even down with his knowing his daughter has sex. Yeah. Let alone his wife becoming a witch. Yeah. So I definitely think that it is necessary for her to kind of coming into her final form. But I did kind of play with like, what would the movie be like if I thought that she did know versus uh -huh. because initially I thought she did not know like that was mm -hmm. that was the assumption I had come to. But I wonder if we watch that movie again and like know 
or make the assumption that she does know if if it kind of plays differently. Yeah, I'm wondering like you know, especially with the ending um the, the kind of epilogue scene we get with her back at the party um even that is ambiguous enough because I was about to say how does it change that end scene? And actually the scene plays well either way. Yeah. It's a very you know, I'm going to have to watch it again. Yeah. No, it, it's a very easy watch. I mean, it, I know we're talking about this movie is absolutely soaked in symbolism. Yeah. But it is easy to watch. It is. Oh, and a side note, if you decide you're going to watch it, just a tip on the different versions of the film. So the Shutter version is the 90-minute, I believe this was the VHS version. So it is a cut-down version. There is an Anchor Bay DVD that was released with There's Always Vanilla as a co-feature. That has the full uncut version, and there's also a newer Blu-ray version. I can't remember who put that out. But, you know, it seems like if you want to get the full experience, the lesser cut down, let's say, because I guess Romero filmed like, he had like four hours of footage that he took into the editing room to cull from. Oof. uh, Like from first cut. If you want the more full version of this film, it sounds like physical media is going to be your best bet on this one. Yeah. With all love to Shudder. So next time we're doing Revealer, which is a Shudder original. It is. Uh, I think it came out 2022. Yeah. So excited to watch that one. And I think that's going to be the start of pride month it is yeah so i think we're doing it in honor of the start of pride month we are yeah uh you know this movie uh it celebrates uh a sex worker as our hero so uh you know we'll kind of kick it off there and uh and yay yay, for queer for for, queer representation yeah and also for pride month so yes looking forward to it Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.